Uh, you know, Tuesday is election day, um, for, for better or for worse, whatever you think about politics and uh, which candidates you like or don't like. And uh, the, when the, the candidates are, uh, well, they're busy right now, um, all over the airwaves, uh, putting stuff in your mailbox, you're getting all these little you know, uh, postcards about that size and telling you all the th good things about them and all the bad things about their opponents. And in a way, all of these uh, people that are uh, putting themselves out there for your vote on Tuesday are uh, communicating uh, their resumes. They're, they're putting them out there for you. They, they want you to see who they are and what they've accomplished. And, and they're using a lot of references, too. They're using um, I, I notice almost every week I see, you know, this person has endorsed this person and this person has endorsed this person. And they're, they're getting a, a group of people to, to support them and bolster them and say, this person would do a good job in this position. And uh, the politicians are all doing that. I remember when I was looking uh, for a church uh, to pastor about 15 years ago, a little over 15 years ago, uh, I updated my resume, dusted it off again, and updated it, and sent it all over the country to churches that I heard were looking for pastors. I sent it as far as Maine and as far as California. Sent it down to Florida and Texas, about 35 churches all around the country. And then you sit back and you wait for responses, right? And I, I remember uh, one of the most frustrating parts of that search for me was the response of multiple churches that they were looking for someone with at least 10 years of senior pastor experience. And I was thinking, well, how do I get that experience if you don't give me a chance to get that experience? And it was frustrating waiting. Thankfully, a place called Heather Hills took a second look at a 36-year-old rookie, and the rest is history. But included in my resume was a list of the names of some people uh, who served as recommendations. And these were people who knew me, knew me as a friend, knew me as a, an employee, knew me as a, a pastor, people who could vouch for my credibility or my character and my, my uh, competency to do the job that was required. References serve as letters of introduction to people who don't know you. And we recently studied in our Sunday evening Bible study the letter of Paul to Philemon. And in fact, that letter serves as a letter of recommendation from Paul to Philemon for a man named Onesimus who had been his servant. It's Paul's character reference for Onesimus. It's a powerful letter. It's a model recommendation letter. And it's found right in the Scripture. Paul had given the Corinthian Christians, by now in this second letter that we have in the Scripture, he'd given them several reasons as to why his itinerary had been legitimately changed um, in the last part of chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 2. Remember, he closed the end of 1 Corinthians by saying, I'm going to come to you and spend some time with you, and it's going to be great. And then he didn't, he didn't come. And so he takes the, the beginning of this letter to explain why? And Paul is, even as he's defending himself and giving some reasons for why he didn't come when he, when he said he would and that it wasn't being hypocritical and the Lord had steered his path and all that, Paul still seems to be concerned with the lingering accusation in the Corinthian church by some that Paul's unreliable. 
Paul shouldn't be trusted. So starting here in chapter 3, he, he takes the time to dig down more deeply into the nature of his ministry, what it is that Paul does and, and why he should be the one doing it. He's going to stay on that theme for quite a while. But in our text this morning, we can follow Paul's argument, I think, in two parts in these six verses. First, I want you to look at, in verses 1 through 3, testimonials and tablets. And then in verses 4 through 6, I want you to see sufficiency and spirits. So that's kind of how I want to break it up. And I think Paul wants us to learn something in these verses. He wants us to learn that our triune God, and when I say triune God, hopefully you're understanding me to say the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, our triune God makes our gospel work effective. So let's see how he fleshes that out. Look first of all here at testimonials and tablets in verses 1 through 3. Now, testimonials, or we might say in modern English, letters of recommendation, also seem to have been a common practice in the first century. For example, uh, when Apollos wanted to go to Corinth and into the region of Achaia, the church at Ephesus wrote a letter of recommendation for Apollos. You can find that in Acts chapter 18, verse 27. And, And we notice at the end of many of Paul's letters, that he actually writes these little statements of recommendation, these little paragraphs. Maybe it's at the end of Romans, in Romans 16, where he's commending a woman named Phoebe, who was a patron of the church and a servant of the church. Or maybe he's writing to the Colossians, and he references a man named Archippus and and how valuable he is to the church. So it seemed to be a fairly common practice for people to be exchanging these kinds of introductory recommendation uh, type comments in their letters. So if it was fairly common, then what is Paul ranting about here in verses 1 through 3? Let's take a look, uh, first of all, before we get into these verses, at the end of chapter 2, where we've just come from. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 17, where Paul wrote the last verse. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So apparently what's happening, and we know this from reading the rest of the letter, apparently what's happening is some of these self-seeking leaders or wannabe leaders whom the Corinthian Christians were infatuated with were going around waving their letters of recommendation. Uh, hey, look here, I've got a recommendation from James. Woo, good one in the church of Jerusalem, right? Hey, I've got, I have a recommendation from Peter. Huh? How about that? You guys need to listen to me. Look at my recommendation letter. And by the way, do you notice that, that Paul doesn't ever wave around letters of recommendation himself? What's wrong with him? He must not be as trustworthy as we are. That kind of a sentiment. You see this idea of commendation, a recommendation being brought up, as I mentioned, later in 2 Corinthians. Here's a couple of examples where he's going nose to nose finally with these super apostles, quote unquote, that we've been talking about 
since the beginning of this study. So for example, in chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul writes this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. And again, over in chapter 12 and verse 11, Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So it seems like there's a lot of commending going on in the church at Corinth. And so now that you have a little better perspective of what Paul's talking about doing in these verses as to what he's up against, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He asks two rhetorical questions here. The first question, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And the implied answer, of course, rhetorical question, he wants them to answer, of course not. We're not. The second rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians 3.1 is, or do we need as some do, little dig at the super apostles, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And again, the implied answer, the rhetorical answer would be, well, of course not. Now, Paul is going to answer this objection directly when we get to chapter 5 and verse 12. He's going to say, no. The answer is no, I did not do this. But think about the sad irony behind these questions. Paul was the founder of the church at Corinth. He walked into this city as the first testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes into the synagogue. He starts a ministry there. He builds a church. He spends 18 months ministering in the city of Corinth, which was the capital of Greece at that time, the most prominent city in that whole area. He was the founder. He was like their spiritual father. Would a father ever need a letter of recommendation for his kids? This, this, is, a, this is a painful slight against the Apostle Paul. And the reason why these questions are rhetorical is stated right here in verse 2. You yourselves, Paul says, are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? You would think he would say the letter of recommendation written on your hearts. But notice Paul says, you're the letter of recommendation written on our hearts. Paul's going to do this all the way through this letter of 2 Corinthians. He is going to overemphasize his tender kindness, his love for this church. He's saying, you are our letter of recommendation, and you are etched, written, engraved on our own hearts. We can't help but think about you night and day wherever we go. We are constantly opened up to you. In fact, he's going to say that exactly over in chapter 6 and verse 11. He's going to say, our hearts are wide open. And in return, he asks them to widen your hearts also to us. But notice, there's the reason why Paul doesn't need a letter of recommendation. Because 
They themselves are his letter of recommendation. And as soon as you hear verse 2, you realize this is kind of a bold statement for Paul to make, if you stop and think about it. I I mean, going back to the first letter, right? Think of all the stuff. Think of all the trouble that, that Paul has dealt with, that he has tackled in 1 Corinthians. And now, even in just the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians, there's still stuff, there's still drama, there's still angst going on in this church. Paul, how can you say that this church is a letter of recommendation written on your heart? That, isn't that kind of, doesn't that strike you as kind of bold? I mean, why wouldn't he say, you know, the church at Ephesus is my letter of recommendation, right? Or the, the church at Antioch, where I was sent out from, that's my letter of recommendation. No, no, no. He says, you guys, the messy ones, the Corinthians. Paul saw more in these men and women. He saw that God was doing something in them, that God was doing something with them, that God was doing something through them. Look at verse 3. He says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, and and if you're thinking Ten Commandments there, you're thinking right, but on tablets of human hearts. It's very similar to what Paul said back in chapter 2 and verse 15. There he said, we are the aroma of Christ. Here he says, you are a letter from Christ or of Christ. In other words, you didn't make yourself that way. Yeah, you're messed up. Sure, we're all messed up. I was messed up, Paul would be quick to say. It's by grace alone received by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's all a work of grace. Notice too, Paul doesn't say that you guys individually, uh, so um, yeah, you Greg and, and, and you Bob and, and you Joel and, and you Noah, he doesn't say you guys individually are letters of Christ. He's talking to all of them together. It's a plural you. You yourselves are a letter of recommendation. This church is a testimonial to the world to be reconciled to God. And certainly God had done a transforming work in these people who were idol worshipers to follow Christ, however imperfectly they followed Christ. And what Paul's doing here and in the rest of this chapter, and you'll notice this the further we go, Paul's pulling in several Old Testament passages together and he's, he's pointing us to them. He's putting like little, he's putting like little breadcrumbs on the trail. He's, he's, he's dropping hints here that we need to be thinking about some other passages. Um, For example, he he alludes here to Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, which uses very similar language to verse 3 here in chapter 3. So let me read Ezekiel. It's on the screen too. And and look at verse 3 and just notice some of the similarities here. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And we're also pointed to the words of another promise that Paul has in mind from the prophet Jeremiah. Here's Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what's going on here is Paul's using some of this language that reminds us of Old Testament promises, specifically about the new covenant, as he'll talk about in just a minute. But in these first three verses, the apostle is cheering on the Corinthians. He's urging them on to see themselves as they are and then to respond accordingly. Brothers and sisters, see yourselves for who you are by the grace of God. Sure, you're messy. I'm messy. Sure, we've got all kinds of trials. We've got all kinds of sin that we deal with on a regular basis. But see what God has done in you. You, Heather Hills, you are a letter from Christ. Just as the Corinthians were a letter from Christ. These Corinthian Christians are, they're an open letter of recommendation that everybody who looks at this church and sees what has happened here understands how the Spirit of God used Paul and his co-workers to write some new things and some new ways of living on their hearts, on these tablets of their hearts. You notice that language at the end of verse 3. They're written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, like Moses got on Sinai, but on tablets of human hearts. As one author puts it, vindication of Paul's ministry, to put it in modern day language, is found not by looking in the mailbox, but in the mirror. Paul didn't need letters of recommendation. You just had to look at the people he ministered to, and you see what God has done. That's the reason Paul could be so confident about all this. And, it's, and, and, and he goes on to explain why in the next three verses, the sufficiency and the spirit. So let's go ahead and move there. Verses 4 through 6. In these three verses, Paul's actually answering a question that he raised back in chapter 2 and verse 16. It's probably right across your page there. Who is sufficient for these things? Now look at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Here's how I can be confident that you are my letter of recommendation. My confidence is not in you. It's through Jesus toward God. So Paul's confidence is not in his own cleverness. It's not in his own reputation, his own cunning, his own eloquence. His confidence is not in the congregation's ability to brand and market itself. His confidence is in the work of God, the spirit work of God. And that's why Paul will go on in verse 5 to say, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. In other words, yeah, I'm the founder of this church. I spent blood, sweat, and tears establishing this church. But anything that happened here 
was not because of me. Not because of my own competency, my own sufficiency. It was because of God's sufficiency. It's very similar to what Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at these verses, 5 through 7. You'll remember these. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do you see? It's the same idea. It's the same idea. Paul's not taking credit for what happened in Corinth. It's all of God himself. And that's why Paul goes on further in verse 6. He claims this. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient or competent is another way we could say that. He's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the spirit or the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Here's what Paul's driving at. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. I hope you've seen all three of them in this passage. Do you see it? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit birthed this church. Paul came to Corinth, but it was God, the triune God, who birthed this church. It was the triune God who built this church. The entire Godhead is in charge and involved here. And what the apostle wants these people to grasp is that they're not lacking anything. He wants them to recognize that God is working out his new covenant, or, or we, uh, we sometimes say our, the New Testament. He's working it out in them. For example, Language, again, that you're going to hear some overlap in in this passage. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. I will give you, the prophet says, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. It's being fulfilled. The new, the new Testament, the new covenant is here and you can see it in what God has done in the church at Corinth. And you can see it in what God has done in the church in Indianapolis. The new covenant is here at the end of verse six he starts contrasting the difference between letter and spirit when he uses the word letter at the end of verse six he's using a different greek word from the letter that we saw back in verse three where he's talking about you are my letter of recommendation the letter paul's talking about back there in verses one through three is literally, it's the word epistle. It's where we get the word epistle from. It's, it's the idea of a finished letter or a, a, a manuscript that something has, a message has been written on. But when he uses the word letter in verse 6, he's talking about the alphabets. He's talking about grammar. He's talking about actually r the writing itself, the inscribing 
itself of, of letters. And here's what I want you to notice about this little, this little subtle change here. The written words of God themselves were once outside of us. It was a law that we had to keep. And, and the problem was nobody could keep it. But now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, these words are no longer outside of us. They've become a part of us from the inside out. That letter and spirit contrast that Paul's working on here, and he's going to develop more fully in the rest of this chapter, is, the, is that the letter that was once outside of you has now been inscribed on your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's now a part of you because the Spirit is a part of you and He's working it from the inside out. He's not, what Paul's not doing here, he's not contrasting the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, the tablets of stone, the letter. He's not contrasting that with the New Testament, the Spirit, per se. In other words, the law does not kill in and of itself. When he says the letter kills here, it's not the law that kills in and of itself. Paul addressed this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 7. You remember what he says there, verse 12? The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So where does death come from then, Paul? Verse 13, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. It's not the letter. It's not the law itself that kills us. It's our inability to keep the law. And it's the fact that the law exposes and inspires our sin in breaking it. And that sin is what kills us. That sin is what brings death to us. In fact, think about the Ten Commandments for a minute. How do the Ten Commandments begin? Do you remember? And I'm not asking for the first commandment. I'm asking... How the Ten Commandments begin. Here it is, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, the Ten Commandments don't start with a, you must do this. The Ten Commandments start with a, I did this for you. That's how the Ten Commandments start. It starts with the gospel. It starts with deliverance. It starts with rescue. I took you, God says. You were enslaved. You were powerless. You were shackled to a living death in Egypt, making bricks for Pharaoh. And I did what you could not do for yourselves. I set you free. I put your feet on a rock. I brought your head up above water. I freed you. I liberated you. So, this is how liberated people live. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. On and on and on through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is not what kills you. The Ten Commandments is good and holy. It's the sin within us, the rebellion against God's good and perfect law that kills us. So here is proof of the new covenant being here existing in the time of Paul, certainly in our time today. The Spirit, according to the prophets, the Spirit will take the law, the good, pure, 
righteous law that once was outside of you. And he will write it on your heart by his spirit, by his grace, so that you will now be able to do the things that normally you didn't do, you couldn't do. That's how he makes us the letter from God, the letter from Christ. That's how he enables us to finally experience the law as it was actually given us to be healthy, wholesome. Paul's going to continue to develop some of this more fully starting in verse 7 through the rest of the chapter, which we'll look at next week. But as the praise team comes back to the front here and uh, as our leadership team prepares for the Lord's table, uh, and as these people are moving, let me just kind of bring this to a conclusion this morning and uh, just stay with me, think with me. How do we apply these six verses here where we are today? So Paul's message to the Corinthians, if I can sum it up in a nutshell, is this. What you think you lack, that the super apostles are trying to convince you they'll supply, is wrong. You don't lack anything. You already have all you need in your triune God. Your sufficiency is in him. Now let's get personal for a minute. The Christian life is full of dry and weary periods where there is no water, right? I'm talking symbolically. You've been through places like that. Some of you are in places like that even right now this morning. There are long seasons like this in the Christian life. And it's when we we are trudging through the desert, it's when we are dragging ourselves along through these dry patches that a lot of times we become susceptible and vulnerable to those people who promise us a higher life, something better, a better way to experience God or your best life now. They know it sells Because most Christians go through periods of dry spells in their life. It happens a lot. And there are people out there who are trying to convince you, just like they were trying to convince the Corinthians, ah, the reason that you're going through these dry patches is because you haven't read my book. You haven't had me minister to you. My book's going to draw you closer to God like you've never been before. 1995. Checkout's right over there. Heather Hills, you and I have no need to go chasing after the latest fad, the latest fantasy. Scripture is clear, crystal clear. Even right here, you and I already have all that we need. Our sufficiency Even when you find yourselves trudging through dry and weary places, panting like a deer for streams of water, like David said. Remember Psalm 42? Brothers and sisters, you can look up 
and you can see your Father in heaven, Jesus at his right hand, the Spirit of God within you, and know that you already have all you need through your triune God. He is enough. Never let anybody deceive you into thinking he's not and that you need something more or different. He is enough. Here's how Dane Ortland applied this truth in a commentary. What does it look like to move through life aloof to this truth? Frantic, anxious, overworked, judgmental, burdened, insecure, easily threatened, easily hurt, darting eyes. But what does it look like to move through life in sync with our sufficiency is from God. Calm, relaxed, encouraging of others, cheerful, impervious to criticism, all with childlike wondering at the full and free mercy of God and His remarkable condescension to sinners such as us. And ultimately, only this kind of life will prove spiritually fruitful, for it will be living and serving out of the deep, resources of the Spirit of God, not the impotence of a heart attempting to satisfy the demands of the letter on its own steam. Let me give you some brief points of application as well that you can take with you to your ABF classes today and discuss further or in the time after the services that you have. If you're a Christian, according to this passage today, The Spirit has given you life. Can you rejoice in that? I'm sorry, that was a question I needed an answer to. If you're a Christian, the Spirit has given you life. Can you rejoice in that? Amen. If you're not a Christian, your sin is killing you. And friend, what you need to do today is repent. Turn. Turn away from doing life your own way. Submit before the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace his work on the cross and in the tomb as enough to save you, to forgive you, to give life to you. And after our service this morning, We'll have someone over here in the cubicle here in the corner to your left, a counselor that would be happy to sit down with you. There's, there's actually a couch back there, so you know, don't worry. You don't have to sit on the floor or anything. You, you, can, you can sit down and pray and have the Bible opened and, and take those first steps in becoming a follower of Jesus. We'd love nothing more than to do that this morning. Number three, be confident in the power of the gospel. Be confident in the power of the gospel. Where is your confidence today? If it's in something other than Christ, it's misplaced. Get your confidence back on the power of the gospel. Pastor Brian, man, we haven't had people baptized in a while. It'd be really nice to see people baptized, see people coming to Christ, joining the church. It'd be nice to see revival. 
move through our neighborhoods, through our community, through the east side of Indianapolis? Yes, it sure would. So what are you doing about it? Are you being faithful, spreading the gospel to everybody? Everybody! Everybody! And do you believe that that gospel has power to change people from the inside out, to write a new way of living on their hearts? Be confident in the power of the gospel. Let's put it in a Pauline sense. Whose names are written on your hearts? Think about that. Whose names are written on your heart? The people that God has used you to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to who have embraced it, who have been transformed. Who are they? Are their names written on your heart? Is your heart blank? Be confident in the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It is just as powerful today as it ever has been. It can still save people today just as it always has saved people. Whose names are written on your heart? Finally, Let's remember the triune God is on our side. The triune God is on our side. Father, Son, Spirit. It doesn't matter how educated you are or aren't. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or aren't. It doesn't matter how popular you are or not, how social you are or not, how eloquent you are or not, how fearful you are or not, how young or old you are. God is enough he's sufficient your sufficiency comes from the one who is all sufficiency the triune god is on your side and there is nothing that you can't do with his power behind you and in you and through you you should expect to do great things for your god because you can. Every one of you can. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing a song. It's, a, it's another one of these older songs uh, today, uh, written by Fanny Crosby, the blind songwriter from the 19th century. It's a song that has a lot of joy in it because it, it expresses the truth of a lot of what we've read about today in this passage, the fact that the Spirit has given us life. We're born again. We're born of the Spirit. He's given us a new way to live. It, 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 makes every, it changes everything. It makes us at peace. It puts us at rest. And we can celebrate that. And so let's sing this wonderful old hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. What a foretaste of heaven, of glory divine. Let's sing together.